It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. American Coyote. When people cross the U.S.-Mexico border hoping to immigrate, they encounter a smuggling network whose operators are often highly vulnerable themselves. By Julia Love. Dennis Wilson spent most of his days in early 2017 at an Exxon station in Corpus Christi, Texas, panhandling so he could buy food and meth. He'd arrive in the morning, park his walker between the ice machine and the Redbox movie kiosk, and hold out a striped plastic cup. One day, after a few hours, Wilson took stock of what he'd collected, about $50. Not enough, but a start. He'd been staying with friends after months of sleeping wherever he could find a safe place on the streets, under a freeway overpass, on a bus station bench, in a tent pitched in gritty sand. Then 54, he'd grappled with unstable housing since losing his job as a kitchen supervisor at Denny's and succumbing to the addiction he'd battled from adolescence. As Wilson was settling back in, two heavyset young men approached. One handed him three dollars, the other two dollars. Then they presented him an intriguing offer. Would he help them transport farm equipment for one hundred dollars a day? Wilson was unimpressed. I make that in a couple hours just sitting on my butt, he said. The men countered with five hundred dollars. Wilson held firm. Finally, they went to one thousand dollars a day, a sum Wilson couldn't refuse. The men introduced themselves as brothers from the Rio Grande Valley. They informed Wilson he'd need to start work right away, moving equipment from a town near the Mexican border to a ranch in Kingsville, Texas, past the U.S. Border Patrol checkpoint. Wilson called the friend he'd been staying with to let her know not to wait up. Then he gathered his walker, cane, jacket, and cigarettes, and tucked his six-foot-one-inch frame into the back of the brother's SUV. With music playing on the radio, the trio set out for the border. Wilson mentioned that he didn't have a driver's license, but the brothers told him not to worry. He wouldn't be going far. From time to time, they held sidebars in Spanish until one of them paused to ask Wilson if he understood. Paquito Espanol, he responded. He had a little Spanish. The brothers stuck to English after that. As the border drew closer, a question gnawed at Wilson. What am I getting myself into? It seemed too good to be true, $1,000 for a day of unskilled labor. But he wanted badly to believe. It had been so long since he'd had a lucky break. 
After a few hours on the road, the group arrived at the Texas Inn and Suites in Edinburgh, a sleepy community about 30 minutes north of the border. The brothers helped Wilson check into his room, then asked whether they could bring him anything. Meth and marijuana, Wilson replied. The pair returned a few hours later with drugs, a new jacket, a pair of shoes, and a razor. Wilson was to report for work dressed as a proper Texas gentleman. At 4.30 the next morning, the three men drove to the outskirts of town, where Wilson boarded a truck hitched to the equipment he'd been assigned to tow, a large hay baler. He got on the road and headed north. An hour later, traffic slowed to a halt. He'd reached the Falfurious checkpoint. Federal law gives border agents the authority to conduct warrantless searches within 100 miles of any external boundary of the United States. Texas has 18 of the 35 permanent checkpoints where these searches are often conducted. They form a second, internal border some 70 miles north of Mexican soil. A border agent in a green uniform motioned for Wilson to stop. He felt a pang of anxiety, mindful that he was driving without a license, but after a cursory inspection, the agent waved him through. As Wilson drove on, he got a call from the brothers, who'd been driving alongside him. A metal flap had come loose and was banging against the hay baler's base. Wilson pulled over and mounted the machinery. When he looked down, he was stunned to discover people in its hollow bowels. The equipment had apparently been gutted to make room for them. There were about ten in the group, some sitting shoulder to shoulder on a plywood bench. Wilson did his best to avoid eye contact, but he couldn't help but notice that a few of them looked to be quite young. What in the world, he recalls thinking. I freaked out. The last leg of the global smuggling route leading to the U.S. is often shepherded by people like Wilson, Americans who need the money. Each year, thousands of U.S. citizens are found guilty of human smuggling. In fiscal 2021, they made up three-quarters of the total number convicted in federal courts. Among the defendants are teenage boys with newly issued driver's licenses, young moms who make the trips with their kids in a car, and a striking number of homeless men. One public defender told me the smugglers are often almost as vulnerable as the migrants themselves. In northern Mexico, the people who guide migrants, known as coyotes, are often closely aligned with cartels and other criminal organizations, which ultimately control the operations. But once migrants have reached U.S. soil, the job mostly consists of driving them from place to place until they're past the final checkpoint. The system is more impromptu, run through small-time coyotes who may hear of jobs through friends of friends or on social media. Anyone willing to make quick cash, $2,000, message me, read one Facebook post mentioned in a recent criminal case. A defense lawyer in Corpus Christi told me he represented a teen who'd been recruited on TikTok. The human smuggling industry naturally centers on the Rio Grande Valley, where the border is marked by a river rather than a fence. It's also a place of brutal privation, home to some of the poorest people in Texas. For men and women who make the state minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, if they have a job at all, the promise of quick, easy money is difficult to resist, especially for an offense that often feels innocuous to them. Many border residents regularly cross into Mexico to visit a grandparent, see the dentist, or work on the family ranch. They struggle to see any harm in helping someone else make the journey. For years, according to two lawyers and a veteran Border Patrol agent who requested anonymity because he wasn't authorized to speak to the press, 
federal prosecutors in South Texas typically only charged drivers who were transporting large groups, so long as no one had been harmed or endangered and the driver hadn't been encountered before. That led some drivers to believe they could transport a few small groups with little risk, says one of the lawyers, Simon Purnell, who's based in Corpus Christi. People at the low level are misinformed about what they are getting involved in, he says. When they do get caught, they are kind of shocked. They realize this isn't just a traffic ticket, it's a federal crime. Defense lawyers report that prosecutors now routinely bring cases against small-time smugglers. Prosecutions under Section 1324 of the U.S. Code, bringing in and harboring certain aliens, climbed steadily during the Trump administration, with the exception of a pandemic-related lull in 2020, and have continued to rise under President Joe Biden, reaching a recorded high of almost 6,000 cases in fiscal 2021, according to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse at Syracuse University. The Texas Penal Code also has a charge for the smuggling of persons, enabling state prosecutors to pick up smaller cases the federal government opts not to pursue. Brian Moskowitz, a former U.S. Department of Homeland Security special agent who led investigations into human smuggling rings, says that during his time in government, he advocated prosecuting even low-level offenders, stressing deterrence. But he notes that as long as cycles of violence and poverty push migrants to leave Central America, and as long as South Texas residents face such limited economic opportunities, there will always be another Wilson. Everyone agrees, Moskowitz says. You're not going to arrest your way out of this. When Wilson discovered the true purpose of his trip, he called the brothers, feeling that they'd set him up. We just figured the less you knew, the better you were, he recalls them explaining calmly. When he went to meet them, he was still fuming. Then the brothers handed him a stack of bills totaling at least $2,500, even more than promised, and his anger disappeared. For seven hours' work, he made twice what he once earned in a month at Denny's. An act he would have once found unfathomable soon became routine. The brothers called with a steady stream of gigs, and Wilson obliged. He graduated from driving farming equipment that held maybe a dozen migrants to pulling large trailers with about 50 people hidden inside. If he didn't feel like driving, he enlisted a friend and collected a 10% commission. Sometimes he would dispatch for weeks at a time. Eager to expand their pool of drivers, the brothers didn't mind. Wilson continued to keep his distance from his passengers. By the time he took the wheel, the migrants had already been stowed away. When he arrived at the drop-off point, he took the money and left. He didn't think too deeply about the morality of his actions, and when his mind did turn to questions of right and wrong, he told himself he was simply helping people in pursuit of a better life. Smuggling ushered in a new life for Wilson, too. He moved into an RV the brothers gave him, accompanied by a woman he was dating. He treated his little lady to whatever she wanted and bought himself clothes and shoes. Most of his money went to drugs, but he took pride in the possessions he managed to accumulate. It felt good to have something that I could call my own, he says. For much of his adult life, Wilson had lived near his family home, a cream-colored house shaded by tall trees in Corpus Christi. But he rarely visited. The oldest son of a Southern Baptist minister and a Sunday school teacher, he was the anomaly in a brood of four children who otherwise turned out fine. 
He started dabbling with drugs and alcohol when he was nine or ten years old, sneaking swigs of the beer his mother used on her hair. The experimentation gradually hardened into addiction. As Wilson grew older, he began racking up criminal charges, possession of drugs, public intoxication, forgery. Each time he set out for the Rio Grande Valley, he knew he was committing a felony. There was no avoiding the fact. A sign on Highway 281, one of the main corridors heading north from Mexico, warns drivers, smuggling illegal aliens is a federal crime. Wilson lit a cigarette whenever he passed the sign. He knew he'd been hired for a reason. As a middle-aged white man, he was unlikely to draw scrutiny at Falfurias. And the brothers had promised that if he got in trouble, they'd hire a lawyer for him. In January 2019, they sent him out to work with a skinny 19-year-old, the son of a powerful figure in the smuggling organization. Wilson understood the organization to be an extension of a Mexican drug cartel. Most coyotes in Mexico operate with the permission of the cartels, which often control the routes and extract a toll, current and former law enforcement officers say. Wilson and the kid went to the Rio Grande Valley to collect a pickup truck that was hitched to a trailer with dozens of people inside. They passed through the checkpoint and dropped the group off at a stash house in Houston. Their next task would be to double back five hours to the valley and deposit the trailer so the next group of migrants could board. Exhausted by the first leg of the journey, the 19-year-old asked Wilson if he could sleep in the trailer on the way back. Wilson said no, worried about the kid's safety. Shortly after they departed, one of the truck's tires blew out, and the trailer flipped, crumpling on impact. Taking stock of the wreckage, Wilson felt a powerful wave of relief. If the teen had been killed in the accident, Wilson was sure, the cartel would have hunted him down. And had the tire given out an hour and a half prior, when the migrants were still in the back, the human toll would have been even steeper. But that was a possibility he considered largely through the prism of his own suffering. Criminal penalties for human smuggling escalate sharply when the migrants die en route, and drivers in past cases have faced life in prison and even the death penalty. With each job Wilson accepted, he acted as a small cog in the vast business of moving migrants and refugees across the U.S.-Mexico border. Speaking to reporters in 2021, Mexican Secretary of Foreign Affairs Marcelo Ebrard estimated that human smuggling networks bring in $14 billion a year, transporting migrants from Central and South America to the U.S. The International Organization for Migration, or IOM, has placed the global market at $35 billion. The business at the U.S.-Mexico border only becomes more lucrative as the American government erects more obstacles to migration. The journey begins as far away as Venezuela, where millions of people have departed to escape an unprecedented economic crisis. While many migrants and refugees connect with smugglers before leaving their home country, others chart their own course, traveling in groups for safety and relying on fellow travelers for advice via WhatsApp chat groups. The dangers escalate when migrants reach Mexico. They're frequently victims of kidnapping or other violent crimes, and some hire smugglers in hopes of safer passage to the country's north. Once at the border, few people cross without the assistance of a coyote, in part because the cartels typically ensure no one crosses without paying a fee. At one point, the going rate was about $250 per person, according to the veteran border agent who also spoke about prosecution patterns in South Texas. 
Smuggling networks have close relationships with the cartels, smoothing payment for migrants in their care. Once they cross onto U.S. soil, migrants continue to rely on smugglers. It's the point of their long journey in which hope is at its highest, with the end nearly in sight. But it's also, in some respects, the most fraught, as they must evade a system dedicated to finding and removing them. A shadow economy of workers, each with a carefully compartmentalized role, helps them move deeper into the U.S. Some run the stash houses where migrants wait after crossing the border, preparing meals and logging who's paid. Some, like Wilson, work as chauffeurs. Some simply scout rental listings for properties that could serve as stash houses or pay the utility bills for existing ones. These workers are supervised by coordinators such as the brothers, who report up to the people who run the operations. Current and former law enforcement officials describe U.S. smuggling networks as a loose affiliation of cells. Prosecutions have shed little light on how they coordinate with their counterparts in Mexico, though the veteran border agent says the organizations are often bound by cross-border family ties. Cash fuels everything. Migrants pay along the way, often through wire transfer sent by family members. Coordinators use that money to pay the drivers and others. The going rate for the journey to the U.S. varies greatly based on where migrants begin, says Olivier Tenez, a senior immigration specialist with IOM. In interviews conducted in recent months, the agency found that Central American migrants are paying ten to $15,000, whereas Ecuadorians spend from $17,000 to $25,000, and those departing from Africa and Asia often pay more than $40,000. The price migrants pay also depends on factors such as the quality of their accommodations, the method by which they pass through borders and checkpoints, and the basic economics of supply and demand. Demand and prices have been up since pandemic-related travel restrictions eased, Tenes says. With more money in the system, extortion of migrants is also on the rise. The U.S. government has even encountered cases of rival networks attempting to steal each other's passengers, according to Craig Larrabee, acting special agent in charge of the Homeland Security Investigations Office in San Antonio. Larrabee expressed particular concern that social media posts are attracting teenage drivers living far from the border who might not have learned of the gigs when recruitment was largely word of mouth. Drivers are typically compensated based on how many people they've transported and how far they've driven though pay can vary widely depending on experience and bargaining ability. Those driving migrants through the checkpoint typically earn more than Wilson was making, $1,000 per person, the veteran border agent says. It's a handsome sum, but a small share of the overall value of the transaction, especially given that drivers face the greatest risk of arrest. Shortly before dawn on April 11, 2019, Wilson pulled up to the Falfurias checkpoint in a Dodge Ram pickup. He was towing a travel trailer packed with 50 people. This trip was to bring his heftiest payday yet, a job so lucrative he thought it might be his last. Then again, he'd told himself that before. Wilson always made sure to arrive at the checkpoint before 6 a.m., when the morning crew of border agents, who were known to bring greater scrutiny, started their shift. On this day, though, he showed up closer to 6.10. A Border Patrol agent asked Wilson for his identification, and he produced his state ID card. Meanwhile, another agent approached with a service canine, who sniffed his way toward the trailer and sat down, signaling that he'd caught a scent. Wilson stared straight ahead, 
avoiding the agent's gaze. His breathing turned heavy. The first agent directed Wilson to secondary inspection, where officers searched the trailer and found migrants from Costa Rica, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico. One by one, they admitted to having entered the U.S. without authorization. They told authorities they'd followed a well-trodden path, waiting to cross the border in cartel strongholds in northern Mexico, then shuffling from stash house to stash house in south Texas until finally boarding the trailer, ladies first, arranging themselves with care to distribute their weight evenly across the vehicle. One account said it had been so hot during the drive that the speaker feared for his life. A man in the group described the events to Bloomberg Businessweek on condition of anonymity. He'd fled his country in early 2019 after facing harassment by local police, then flown to Mexico on a visa, arriving in the northern city of Monterey before deciding to cross into the U.S. He got in touch with a smuggling network, which charged him $8,000 for the trip. The people who brought him the rest of the way fed him and let him keep his phone. I can't say they treated me poorly, he says, though they didn't inform him of his right to claim asylum at the border. He didn't want to say much more about the network. He seemed to believe it would be dangerous. After crossing the Rio Grande, he was whisked to a stash house, where he waited for his turn to circumvent the checkpoint. He slept for over a week on a cement floor, then finally boarded a trailer one morning before dawn with dozens of others. Seated on the floor in the darkness, he began to pray. Nearing the last hurdle of his long journey, he had reason to be hopeful, but he felt only nerves. We were afraid because there were so many of us, he recalls. The vehicle came to a stop after about an hour on the road. The man tried to stay calm, but he heard dogs barking, signaling trouble. Then a border agent threw open the door, flooding the trailer with light. Wilson and his passengers were placed under arrest. Migrants who didn't have an asylum case were likely to be deported. It was mostly a question of whether they'd be flown home right away or after providing information for the case against Wilson, who was interviewed by a pair of Homeland Security agents in a cramped interrogation room not far from where his passengers were being questioned. After being read his Miranda rights, he'd agreed to speak without an attorney. He told the agents he'd been taking the migrants to Houston and conceded that the morning's journey was far from his first such trip. He estimated he'd completed 12 to 14 of these assignments for $2,500 to $4,500 each. The agents took notes as Wilson built the case against himself, trip by trip. It didn't occur to him to feign ignorance or to keep quiet and await a lawyer. This is common in human smuggling prosecutions, defense lawyers say. More often than not, drivers who've been apprehended waive their Miranda rights and confess. Some talk in the hope they can clear it all up or win points for cooperating, but their candid statements leave their counsel, who are typically court-appointed, with little room to maneuver. Participating in the investigation can only help defendants so much. Information is carefully compartmentalized in human smuggling networks, leaving many drivers uninformed about the organization beyond their direct contacts' names, which may or may not be real. After the interview wrapped, Wilson rang the brothers from detention, hoping to take advantage of the legal help they'd promised to provide if he were arrested. He got a recording saying the line had been disconnected. He called again the next day to no avail. In June, two months after he'd been arrested and charged, Wilson signed a plea agreement. The following January, he stood before U.S. District Judge David Morales for sentencing. Based on the number of migrants Wilson had been transporting and his criminal record, 
Federal guidelines called for a sentence of 77 to 96 months, but the prosecutor recommended he get only 52, citing the desperate circumstances Wilson was in when he was first hired. Wilson's court-appointed lawyer, Stephen McMaines, asked the judge to consider an even shorter sentence. The smuggling network was trying to recruit a certain type of homeless person to kind of build up the organization, McMaines said. They actively recruited this type of person. Morales sentenced Wilson to 52 months. He was sent to the same prison in Bastrop, Texas, that had once housed the disgraced chief accountant of Enron. Wilson counted himself fortunate. For all he'd done, the sentence seemed to him rather light. As he settled into his term, he began journaling daily, documenting the people he met, the simple meals he ate, the drug treatment program that would help him process years of pain. Wilson eventually completed the program, which he says shaved about a year off his sentence. As his release date approached, he began to contemplate how he might re-enter a changed world. He'd gotten vaccinated against COVID-19 as soon as he was able. At 59, he'd already lived much longer than he'd expected, and he was determined to keep going. I want to live another day, he wrote in his journal, and I will do whatever it takes to do so. Wilson was released from a federal halfway house on August 17, 2022. That day, I traveled to Corpus Christi to meet him, hoping to better understand his past and the events that led to his arrest. We'd been corresponding for nearly two years by then. During our first call in March 2021, I'd listened as he skimmed the surface of his life, his childhood in Corpus Christi, his early experimentation with drugs. He was just beginning to tell me about his stepson, his pride and joy, when the line went dead. We'd reached the 10-minute limit for inmate calls. Week by week, Wilson recounted his past for me in these tidy increments. It felt like receiving a life story through a Pez dispenser. He re-entered society in much the same financial position as he'd been when he met the brothers. He was homeless again at 60. When we met, he approached me using his walker, his blue eyes squinting in the sun. In detention, he'd gained more than 100 pounds and gotten a tattoo on his left wrist reading SJM, the initials of the woman he'd been dating at the time of his arrest. We hopped into my rental car, bound for the gas station where Wilson was first recruited. He guided me down streets that were dense with memories. We reached the gas station and pulled into a parking spot outside the convenience store. Nothing's changed, he proclaimed. Walking toward the ice machine, he showed me where he would set up shop for the day. The store manager let him be, and if other employees hassled him, he'd say he was waiting on a greyhound. I suggested that he show me his childhood home. Along the way, he called my attention to the river where he'd fished as a boy, even though there was little catch to be found. When we rounded the bend and pulled up to the house, Wilson fell quiet and bowed his head, staring at his flip-flops. He hadn't been home in years. He could picture his parents sitting at the kitchen table, playing dominoes or Yahtzee. But he didn't dare knock on the door to say hello. He's still mending the relationship, which was strained by his long struggles with addiction and the criminal justice system. Sensing Wilson's discomfort, I suggested we continue to Sam's BBQ, a local restaurant where he once worked as a chef, earning a nickname that persists to this day, BBQ Man. We ordered brisket, the house special, and when Wilson's arrived, he ate it with his fingers. It's good, he said after the first bite. Mopping sweat from his brow, Wilson reflected on his goals for the future. 
He hoped to recover the RV, where he'd resided at the time of his arrest. He'd used the vehicle a few times for smuggling trips, and the brothers had let him keep it after he mentioned needing a place to stay. But after his arrest, the vehicle vanished. At the top of Wilson's list was maintaining his nearly three-and-a-half-year streak of sobriety, among the longest of his adult life. When I asked him why he hadn't been able to get clean before, he looked up from his plate and met my gaze resolutely. "'Cause you have to want to,' he replied. "'I need my support system back. I need my family back.'" Wilson was firm that his smuggling days were over. He'd paid too steep a price already. While he was in prison, he sometimes wondered whether he would hear from the brothers upon his release. But now that he was out, the possibility seemed more remote with each passing day. As a friend who'd once driven on his behalf had put it to him, we're expendable. The next day, we met at the bus terminal, one of Wilson's favorite haunts. For as little as ten cents, he could ride all day, enjoying the air conditioning and views of the bay, a little bit less time to have to wander around the streets. We boarded the 78 bus, which crosses downtown Corpus Christi, tracing Wilson's journey through the criminal justice system, the federal courthouse where he'd been sentenced, the halfway house where he finished his term. Then we transferred to another bus and went past the house where he'd been staying when he was recruited. He scanned the driveway, looking for the RV. He searched the face of a woman who was walking to the bus stop, wondering whether she might be his ex-girlfriend, Sarah, whose initials are tattooed on his wrist. They're just memories, is all, Wilson said. Sweep it under the rug and move on. As we rode, he used his phone to peruse tickets for a longer, more expensive trip to Houston. He hoped to move there and live with a woman he'd met online. He figured he could get by on disability checks. A few hurdles still stood in his way, getting clearance from his probation officer to transfer his case to Houston and rounding up money for the fare. But when we got off the bus, Wilson walked with a certain swagger. The route ended just outside the halfway house. As he drew closer to its brick facade, three men crowded at the window, waving to greet their former companion. Wilson waved back, flaunting his newfound freedom. One of the men was still serving time for transporting migrants. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.